0: And uh, I want to continue in my message on praise and worship. So once you have found Psalm 137, if you would just uh, look up and uh, I'd like you to be able to follow it as I read. What we're going to be reading is we're going to be reading the, uh, a psalm that is a testimony of the Jews when they were taken captive They were captured by Nebuchadnezzar. They were taken out of of Jerusalem, uh, which was also called Zion. When you see the word Zion, it refers to Jerusalem. And it specifically refers to Jerusalem with a connotation that Jerusalem was God's choice for his capital in the midst of his people. So when you see the word Zion, what you're really seeing is God saying, this is my capital in the midst of you. Um, So... They are now in Babylon about 700-some-odd about miles east. They have been there 70 years. And during those 70 years, well, you'll, you'll get it when we read, their, their captors and their tormentors used to make fun of them and demand that they would have these praise and worship services. They wanted, because everyone knew those Jews loved to just jump around and dance and sing and celebrate before the Lord. So they, they wanted to see them doing that, there in Babylon. That's the context for the Scripture. So it's Psalm 137, verses 1 through 4. And here we go. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yes, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps on the midst of the willow trees. For there, those that carried us away captive required of us a song. And those that wasted us required of us mirth. And mirth, of course, is a word for happiness, joy, celebration. So those that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of those songs of Zion. But how, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? And that's our text. The rivers of Babylon is where you come to realize that praise and worship is more than music. Praise and worship doesn't take place wherever you have music and singing. Praise and worship takes place wherever you have the presence of God. And the Jews in captivity realize that you can't just sing about Zion. You have to be in Zion, so if you try to get mirth in a strange land, you might as well just hang your guitars up on the trees because you can't do it. That's what they said. How can we sing the song of the Lord in this strange land in Babylon? God is in Zion. And so they, they even back then in the New Testament, through them, God was laying down the principle, the the. the, the central feature of praise and worship is that it must take place in the presence of God. So praise and worship is not music. Praise and worship is communion in the presence of God. So this series is about getting praise and worship from Babylon back to Zion. Hallelujah. And these first uh, few beginning messages, including this one this morning, And these first few beginning messages, we're defining the elements, what praise and worship actually is. We're just going to put some definition to it. And then afterwards, we're going to explore the depths and the benefits of praise and worship. And so this morning, I want to explain the difference between worship, praise, and blessing because they're different. They overlap. They always function together, but to understand them... Those three words do refer to three distinct things. Worship, praise, and blessing. Worship first. Simple definition for worship is that worship is honoring God with homage and deference. How many of you know, pretty sure you know what the word deference means? It comes from the word to defer. To yield your will over to another. Deference is to say, as Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done. He had a will, but he set it aside and he deferred to the Father's will. And once he made that deferment to the Father's will, he received strength from the angels of God that enabled him to go to Calvary and pay that great and tremendous debt, uh, that price for our, our debt of sin. So worship is really, in its broadest sense, Honoring God and doing it with homage. If you're not sure what homage is, homage is to, is to literally parallel to the ground oneself, to bow down and to do reverence to something or to someone. So worship is honoring God with homage, with respect, with reverence, and with the deferring of your will his will. So, with that in mind, one of the strongest and most beautiful descriptions of an act of worship is found in Luke chapter seven, where the woman with the alabaster box comes into Simon the um, uh, Pharisee's house, where he's invited Jesus to come. And Simon was like so many else, uh, so many other the Pharisees. He was pompous. He was inflated with his own sense of importance. He probably invited Jesus there because Jesus was a novelty and he thought maybe he could, you know, maneuver Jesus into some kind of a difficult question and be able to get over on him. And so there was all this strategery involved in the invitation. Jesus is sitting in the midst of this house. The air has got to be thick with that sense of, of the the meeting of the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And in comes this woman in the midst of this luncheon that they're having, probably packed with people. Here comes this woman. The Bible doesn't tell her who she is. Tradition, which is totally wrong on this point, puts her as Mary Magdalene or puts her as Martha. She's neither Mary Magdalene nor Martha. She is simply a woman Whom Jesus describes as her sins are great. Her sins are great. The woman with the alabaster box filled with ointment walks in with all this going on. She doesn't get in front of Jesus. She gets down on her hands and knees. She crawls up behind him where he's sitting, and she begins crying, weeping. Now, This was not just a little trickle of a tear that, you know, she squeezed out of one eye. The Bible says that she wept so intensely that there were enough tears to wash Jesus' feet. She let her hair down, and she began to wash his feet, using her hair as a towel, using her tears as water. It just about sucks the breath out of my lungs, just talking about it, just thinking, picturing being there, what happened and what that moment meant. She performs this act of worship. There's homage. There's deference. But there's not a word spoken. She doesn't say anything. She's just weeping. But her weeping is saying everything, isn't it? So... The Pharisee, obviously, and his friends were just offended. They they just said, well, this proves Jesus obviously is can't be a prophet. He certainly can't be the Messiah, because if he knew who this woman was, we all know who this woman is. And I don't want to posit a guess as to why they knew, but they, I'm sure she had a reputation. Perhaps that was the extent of how they knew. But they were just offended. And all they could think about in their religious attitude was, oh, if he knew what kind of lady she was, he wouldn't be letting her do this. This display, this pathetic, this embarrassing act. But boy, Jesus just let her. He didn't stop her. He just let her get it all out. Do you see? See what was going on? He just let her get it all out. And he was paying attention to every tear, every crack in her voice, everything. Her heart was pounding. He was listening to the beat of every heartbeat, though he didn't seem to be responding. And I want you to know that when you abandon yourself to worship God, that he, you might think he's not paying attention, but he is measuring, listening, receiving, analyzing, and instantly knowing what everything you're doing means to you and what it means to him. And so Jesus was aware that there was a tremendous conflict in the room, and the Pharisees had this attitude, and he said to Simon, he said, Simon, he said there was a man that committed a little sin and a man that committed a lot of sin, and both of them were forgiven. Who loved the most? And Simon said, being a good Pharisee, he weighed it out. He said, well, I suppose the guy that had sinned the most loved the most. He said, you're absolutely right. He said, you see this woman here? Now she's still washing his feet with her tears. That is, she had a life full pouring out of her. Jesus said, this woman... Do you see what she's doing? He said, I came in, you didn't wash my feet. He said, you didn't anoint me. She's brought precious an, uh, a alabaster box, probably the most valuable thing she had, opened it up was anointing his feet after washing them. She didn't want to put that perfuming anointing on his feet until she had, these feet need to be washed. So she uses her, what she has her tears in her hair. When she washes him, she rubs the anointing oil on his feet, fills the room with the aroma. He said, you didn't anoint me. He said, you didn't anoint my head, which obviously was some kind of a custom in that day. And he said, but this woman is anointing my feet. She's using her tears. And he draws the comparison. He said, do you see this woman? He said, I say to you, her sins, now listen to what Jesus says next, which are many He doesn't deny her sins are many. He says, I tell you her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she has loved much. Wow. There's the heart of worship. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven in this act of worship, for she loved much. Jesus took everything that woman poured out on him as love. He heard love. He saw love. He received love from her. And in return, he gave her what she needed most, an absolute freed heart, broken chains, removed the yoke. She went out forgiven, forgiven. And I might say with an added little social benefit of having been contrasted with the Pharisees. By Jesus at that luncheon. For the rest of her life, she could tuck that away in her heart and know no matter how they stared, sneered, said that was the woman, that whatever, blah, 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 but she knows what Jesus said. Isn't that awesome? So true worship engages your whole spirit, soul, and body. Now remember, I'm giving definitions that show the difference between worship, praise, and blessing. So worship. It engages your whole spirit, soul, and body. Obviously, your tears can produce worship. Your weeping can produce worship. The hairs of your head, you're seeing the physical, the spiritual, the emotional, all of it. And Jesus says to the woman at the well in John 4, he says, Woman, he said, the hour is coming and it's here already when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Because God's looking for people who do that. Now, I know there's a lot of people looking for God, but they walk in error and celebrate their error, and they don't walk in truth, and they resist the Holy Spirit. So they don't find God. But if you want to find God, He's looking for you, and the quickest way I know to show up on God's radar is to worship in spirit and truth, and He'll find you. Bam, there you go. There's no more being lost. There's no more... God is looking, hallelujah, people who are lit up by worshiping in spirit and truth. So again, we're, we're worshiping with our, worship is not necessarily verbal. Um, and worshiping in truth is not just saying the truth, but worshiping is living the truth and, and, and aligning your life with truth. And then the other verse that I'd like to use to bring out this point is in Romans 12 where Paul I know you're familiar with this. Paul writes, <clears throat> I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Some translations translate it as spiritual service. So the idea of service and worship go together. Do you remember when Jesus was confronted by the devil in his temptation during his fast in the wilderness? He said... Satan, he said, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So service and worship. We worship with our service. Our serving is a form of worship. So worship is this very broad, all-encompassing lifestyle and not just a religious act. In the Old Testament, worship was a prescribed religious act. You had to go to a certain place to do it. You had to do it a certain way. They appointed certain musicians, and at certain times these things would all happen. You'd have to bring certain sacrifices. There was a certain parameter to worship in every detail. Um, The problem with limiting worship or defining worship by just an act, we come into the sanctuary, first three songs, that's worship. Now we move on, we're not worshiping, and we've done worship, is that... Once you have fulfilled that religious obligation, the sense is that you're free to now go on without God and be yourself without God. And and so people do that in churches today. They'll go to certain churches. They'll go through a spiritual process. That process has um, offered and guaranteed to them to cleanse them and free them, and then they could go out, click up their heels, and go out and be themselves again for a week or whatever, and and until they have to come back and, quote, worship again. The, the, the problem is nobody really is knowing or serving God. No one's really worshiping God that way. Remember, Jesus said to the woman at the well, he said, I know, lady, you, you people think go up in this mountain then you will fulfill true worship. And yeah, my people say, go to Zion, Jerusalem, and worship. He said, but I'm telling you, the Father is seeking those now who worship in spirit and truth. So you can be in the middle of the cathedral. You can be up on the mountain. uh, You can even have your Bible open in your lap and be reciting things and not worship. Spirit and truth is not a prescription. It's not a location. It It is a connection with God and God knows if you're connected. God knows if there's the connection taking place. So this definition should free your mind up a little bit about what worship is and it should let you know that what God's looking for is he pulls away the weeds and all of the outer material in your life. He's trying to get to your heart. He's trying to get to where where the sincerity is coming from inside of you, right? Amen. Okay, so so worship is not an inoculation from God. I've done my worship, now I'm inoculated. Um, it, worship is not an inoculation from God in the sense that it, uh, that it makes sin safe. It's not a... Never mind. Never mind. I think you all know where we're at here. Listen, Jesus said in Matthew 15, this people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. So you can worship in vain. Now listen to what he describes their particular vanity as. He says, in in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men." And so in this particular case, Jesus is making the connection that your worship is, in this case, if you're a teacher or a counselor, when you're giving advice or when you're teaching, God's looking at it and seeing is that worship. He sees your, uh, he sees your vocation as a potential for worship. All that you do should be done to the glory of God. And so that really is the broad parameter of what worship is. You choose to make nothing, some things, or everything in your life a worship to God based on where you situate your heart and where spirit and truth is when you go through all those different things in your life. Isn't that good? Okay, praise. What is praise? Why why do we use the term praise and worship? Because they are different. Again, in the application... They overlap, they they work together, but they are different. Here's my definition for praise. Praise is verbalizing the glories of God's character and his acts. Verbalizing the glories of God's character, his attributes, and the things that he's done, his acts. Praise is always extroverted. Extroverted. There's no such thing as silent praise, there's no such thing as mental praise. You can think uh, appreciative thoughts towards God, but it's not praise until you begin to vocalize them. And in vocalizing them, you need to direct that praise as a declaration or as a thanksgiving expression to God and it needs to be consistent with what He has said, His character and His attributes. Praise is always extroverted. It's verbal. It's often loud. I believe there is a sanctification on volume. I I believe that not all volume is bad. And in many cases, volume is what's needed. That's like I used to just get so annoyed by, and this is a terrible comparison, but you'll get the point. You see the bumper sticker War is not the answer. I thought, what hillbilly came up with that stupid notion? War is sometimes the only answer. And and, and it's just so ignorant of people when they come up with these statements that deny the very reality of life. You may not like war, but sometimes war is the only way to get certain things done. Now, um, the fact is that... Volume is very important, and I'm not going to take time this morning to talk about volume, but down the road when we get a little more deep into this, I'll share with you why God not only sanctions, but sometimes He dials up volume. He orders it. He commands His people to get loud. Hallelujah. There are times, and there's reasons for it. But I just want to give you the definition. Praise is extroverted. It's verbalizing God's glory and His character and His acts. So far, you've probably noticed that when it comes to worship and when it comes to praise, none of these definitions are limited by the proclivities of people's personalities. Some of these things flow perfectly with your personality, but some of them flow totally against the grain of your personalities. Notice that if, well, there's an old saying we have down south, If this rubs the cat's fur the wrong way, let the cat turn around. That's the way you solve that problem. The cat's just heading in the wrong direction, baby. So the fact is that praising and worshiping God needs to be about God and what God is looking for and what God wants And it should pull us into conformity because we will never pull God into conformity going the other direction. So praise is extrovert. Praise is verbal always, sometimes loud. And while the heart of worship hits its critical mass, uh, while worship, excuse me, hits its critical mass in the heart of man. Remember the woman pouring her heart out and weeping. It was her heart, not the act of what she was doing. It was the heart that was producing it. So what made that worship was something that was happening in her heart. Praise, on the other hand, hits its critical mass in the tongue, not in the heart. Yes, it involves heart commitment, but it doesn't become praise until it passes through your lips and starts coming out your mouth. Amen? So, the tongue is where praise hits critical mass. Praise must be vocal because it's an act of defiance, among other things, against Satan and evil circumstance. Praise is a weapon. It is an ordained sword and shield. It is a weapon of warfare against the prince of the power of the air. It is specifically designed to be effective in a physical world. Praise is verbal because it needs to be heard out there in the air where the warfare is taking place. Amen? Amen. So that's why thinking is not praising. You've got scriptures. I know you're familiar with them. I'll throw a few out um, Psalm 34 and verse 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my heart. Oh, did I mess it up? I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my... Oh, come on. Somebody help me. Thank you for those two. It'll be where? In my mouth. Hallelujah. Not just my neighbor's mouth. You haven't praised God because you went to church and everybody was praising God while you were enjoying it, not participating. Not participating. And you're not praising God if you stand there and say, well, this is not my cup of tea. See, praise is not designed to be your cup of tea. It's designed to lift you up so that your cup of tea can become the river of living water. Hallelujah. Glory to God. So, And then there's that Psalm 63, verse 3. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. It doesn't say, because your steadfast love is better than life, I will be filled with gratitude. Yes, of course I'll be filled with gratitude. But there's a point at which that filling has to overflow and come out. When it does, it comes out your lips. And, of course, in the New Testament, Hebrews 13, 15 says, By Jesus, therefore, let us offer the offering of praise to God continually, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks. Everyone say, giving thanks giving thanks to his name. Now, the difference between praise and worship is exemplified by the difference between thankfulness and thanksgiving. They both are very similar. They're both, they both originate from the, from the same sentiment, but they are different. One comes forth out of that sense of thankfulness and ends up in your attitudes, the other comes up, goes right through the roof of your attitude, hits the roof of your mouth, and leaps off your tongue in a, thank you, man, those beans and hot dogs were awesome, because that's the Thanksgiving that I spoke to my wife the other night, I said, I told her, I said, I think these are the best beans and hot dogs in the whole world. Can I have some more, please? So, thankfulness is wonderful. We want to be thankful. If you're not thankful, you just dry up. But there's a difference between thankfulness and thanksgiving. Your spouse can see that you're thankful through the acts of appreciation that she sees. You washed the dishes. Or he You, you, you know, took his clothes off the line and folded them for him. You know, those acts that we, that we use to show our spouse that we appreciate them, that we are thankful for them, that's the, the nonverbal message is communicated through those behaviors. But please, if you want a good marriage, if you want your marriage to be better, don't stop at just showing thankfulness through your deeds. Because let me tell you that when you sit down and you lock eyes, and with the sincerity of all of your heart, you, that little grin, wry grin rolls up on your lip, and you just say, thank you, I so appreciate The special service is about to come out. (laughs) You want to get the special favor from your spouse? Don't just be thankful, but practice thanksgiving. (coughs) And you know there's no limit to how you can express thanksgiving. You can, as you walk out the front door, you can say, oh, thank you, by the way. And that's fine. At least it will be registered, checked off. They said, thank you. But you could say, listen, I know, I know that, um, you know, it's kind of last minute, but would you have a few hours tomorrow afternoon? I'd like to take you to lunch. Oh, well, let me see. I'm going to clear my schedule. And you take your spouse to lunch. Wow, we don't do this. And partway through the meal, you begin to enumerate the things that you appreciate about your spouse. You begin to tell him. You begin to tell her, you know, I just want to get away from everything and get you in front of me and tell you how my heart feels about you. And you start thanksgiving. You know what's coming. The good stuff. I mean... Your, that hand's going to come across the table. It's just going to get a hold of your hand. Little eyes are going to glisten. And there's going to be extra bacon on your meatloaf. You know that's where my mind goes. Hallelujah. So at any rate, your spouse is going to be drawn to reciprocate to be better, to do more. This is why relationships are stale. There's thankfulness, and then they get angry with one another when one of them accuses the other says, you're not thankful. Yes, I am. Yeah, yes, I am. And you're angry, and you're arguing for yourself because you know in your heart you're thankful. Yeah, but they don't ever hear thanksgiving. So it's one thing to, to run the dipstick down into the oil tank and say, there's oil in here. It's another thing to be overflowing, overflowing. So praise is different from worship in that praise is is articulating, showing God that you've taken the time to learn his word and you are speaking it back to him. You are you are rehearsing the various things. Lord, I was reading in your word today in Mark how that da And I thought that was so wonderful. Thank you, Lord, because I know that's how you are towards me. It, it, it blesses the Lord's heart when we praise him. And it is a weapon against the enemy. We're not going to take the time this morning, but one of the definitions for the word praise has in it this English word, stultify. And I think I'm going to name one of these messages, stultification. You are going to get excited when you hear that, because praise stultifies the enemy. You can go look it up. But it is it is a weapon against the enemy. Hallelujah. So, okay, let me move on, bring me to our third and final point, and that is blessing. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Now, Again, the overlap is that praise and worship and blessing, they all go together. They're often stated together. They they work together. But I want you to understand that there's an element in praise and in worship called blessing. And blessing, my definition for blessing is very simple. It's giving God what he values in you. If you bless somebody, you have given them something of value. You have elevated their value. You have added to their value. Well, God cannot be improved upon. So when we bless the Lord, we're not improving God's value. But do know this, even though God cannot be improved upon, you cannot add value to him in the sense that it's going to escalate or or enlarge his value. But God is capable of appreciating value. In fact, I believe we were made in the image and likeness of God for that exact purpose, so that he would have a being made in his image and likeness, many beings, because he is eternally a father with whom he can have relationship. And because God is love, God is agape, the very nature of love wants to share that appreciation, which means that God can't be in love with Pinocchio. God can't be in love with a puppet. Um, God has to be in love with somebody like him. That's why we're called the bride of Christ. Blessing God is, is causing God to delight in and to appreciate what you are offering him. So whenever you offer God what he considers to be valuable in you, you are blessing God. This means there is nobody here this morning that cannot bless God. Do not sell yourself short. Do not say, oh, I can't carry a tune, so I can't really sing. Don't say, well, I don't have much money, so I can't give a big offering. Or don't say, I don't have a lot of talent, so I can't do a lot of things, quote, for God. Blessing God doesn't have to do with how you compare to anybody else. Blessing God has to do with you taking what is of value to God in your own life And offering it back to him. And it just, it fills him up. It blesses him. It just makes God happy. Can you say amen? Amen. So blessing is giving or acknowledging what God has made valuable in you and giving it back to God. So that's why Psalm 103 says in verse 1, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me bless me. His holy name. So with that, let me close with a couple of thoughts about blessing God. Therefore, if we can bless the Lord with all that is within us, blessing God can take as many different forms as there are different things in you that are of value to Him. For instance, celebrating the Lord. Here's a, here's a few scriptural, scriptural ones. Just celebration, celebrating, getting excited People get excited. Think about it. They go to concerts. They go to sporting events and concerts that are designed to bring excitement out of the human being. If you think about it, entertainment in in much the same way is, is designed to bring celebration and excitement. It's a feature of how you and I were made that God really likes. Now, we use that feature of celebrating and excitement And we celebrate things that are shameful, and we celebrate things that are dark. We all know that. But the church has made a horrible mistake over the years by um, eliminating from itself all of those things culturally that people do in the form of celebration when they celebrate darkness, and they said, well, that's just of the devil, and it was the worst thing in the world for the church to do because God made us to be celebratory and to celebrate. Man, the world does dancing and they tear their clothes off and they, and they, get, um, they, they become immoral about it. But God created it to be clothed in his glory and praise and to dance before the Lord with all your might like David did. Amen? So celebrating the Lord with dancing celebrating the Lord with clapping, celebrating the Lord with shouting, with leaping for joy. Um, all these different expressions of celebration, they bless the Lord. When we do that before God, you can come in on a Sunday and, and maybe um, be feeling particularly inhibited. What if you were to break out and decide I'm going to run around the church? The old-timey Pentecostal churches we used to go to years ago, that's what people did. they get excited and take a run around the church. Oh, yeah. And uh, every now and then, you'd see a couple deacons collide in the back, and it was a uh, big bunch of fun. There was never a dull service. Um, and so, oh, yeah, we used to, you know, and dancing, and it was the biggest fun to watch people who couldn't dance a lick dance before the Lord. That was hilarious. Uh, but that obviously wasn't the purpose of it. But the point is... What if you were to come in and say, I am going to lift my voice and shout unto God. I am going to clap my hands. I am going to leap for joy. I may be, I may be 72 years old, but I'm going to leap for joy. Now, I'm not 72. I'm not saying that. I'm just, I'm just using, uh, you know, uh, yeah, evangelistically speaking, using preacherisms. Few years, right? Not far from it. So at any rate, point is, That a celebration is something that blesses the Lord when we celebrate us unto the Lord. Well, what are some other things? Um, Vocalizing your faith. We talked about how praise is vocal. Praise or vocalizing your faith in every way blesses God. You vocalize your faith with singing. You vocalize your faith with declaring, especially if you're in a situation where God's being run down and cursed, and you don't want to argue with your environment, but you decide, you know what, I'm going to give God equal time, and I'm going to bless the Lord. And so you decide to praise Him, or to say something good about Him, where everybody else is running Him down. Now, they might be getting mad at you and and run you out, but if you bless the Lord, God's happy, you know? And so you can bless the Lord with... um, declaring. You know what? You bless the Lord with testifying. When you share Jesus with others, it blesses the Lord. You're testifying of the faith that God has put within you. You're lifting up the Lord Jesus. You're letting your light shine. Sharing Him with others, testifying of God, lifting Him up, blesses the Lord. You honor Jesus. Here's here's a few other ways. You bless the Lord when you honor Jesus with your giving. Whether you're giving your time, whether you're giving offerings in church, you're giving yourself out of your love for Christ, out of your love for the Father, you're honoring God by showing deference. Every time you step aside in your own will and take a humble position, so that God can can lift up his better will, you are blessing the Lord. That blesses the Lord. Hallelujah. Can you say amen? Amen. Choosing righteousness. Whenever you're in a situation where everybody's choosing the wrong thing and you you don't make a, a spectacle of yourself, you just simply and humbly, you choose righteousness. You're not trying to show anyone up. You're not trying to make a point. You're just, as unto the Lord, choosing righteousness. No one may ever reward you for the choice you've made. But that blesses God when you choose righteousness. These are, oh, and working. The Bible says, do all that you do as unto the Lord. When you go and you do your work as unto the Lord, You are blessing God. It could be said that you are worshiping through your work and through all the different things that you do. Honoring Jesus, giving, serving, praising, shouting. You see that blessing God is giving to God what he has put in you that he considers valuable. And I'd like to leave you with this thought and then we're going to pray. Think this along with me and maybe carry this thought as as you leave church this morning. What is it in me that God sees is valuable? Now, be bold and be willing. You might say that's not valuable. Be willing to let God say to you, the Father say to you, that is valuable to me. I love that. And ask the Holy Spirit to help you because the Father put the Holy Spirit in you to be your helper. And just say, Lord, show me, help me to see how I can bless you with this thing in my life? How can I give this to you? And I'll tell you, you'll become a prosperous person. In many ways, God will bless you. You can't bless God without him turning around and blessing you back. Stand with me this morning.